Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So I want to begin uh, with just a minute or two of scriptural reflection to set the tone for tonight. So let us revisit an extraordinary biblical metaphor. John the Revelator's vision of a woman struggling to protect life in the face of a beast who threatens incalculable violence. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son. The dragon is one of many master symbols used by this apocalyptic writer, who was a political prisoner of the Roman Empire in the late first century of the Common Era. In Revelation, the dragon is the master metaphor for the lethal violence of empire. It's intent to devour the child, as indeed empires do. This is, however, a clear intra-biblical allusion to the gospel tale of Herod's slaughter of the innocents, a story which in turn is patterned on the old Exodus story of Pharaoh's war on the Hebrew firstborn, in which it was midwives who rescued the kids from the king. Like the Levite mother of Moses, the woman in Revelation 12 gives birth to a child in the teeth of the dragon, nurturing life in defiance of the power of death. And like the story of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, this woman confronts a war machine armed only with the power of love. So this mysterious woman in Revelation 12 thus embodies the dictum of the great contemplative Thomas Merton, who wrote during the darkest days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Christian hope begins where every other hope stands frozen stiff before the face of the unspeakable. John the Revelator further tells us that this cosmic woman is clothed with the sun, stands on the moon, and is crowned with stars. This evocative celestial image is admittedly strange. If it weren't identified as a New Testament text, it would no doubt be dismissed by most religious folk as some sort of New Age rant or drug-infused hallucination. But of course, John's main allusion here is to Mary of Nazareth, the courageous peasant girl who birthed Jesus while fleeing as a political refugee from Herod's program. This is why Catholic iconography often celebrates Mary as the woman clothed with the sun, 
particularly in the beautiful image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the patroness of indigenous peasants who were displaced by Spanish colonization in Mexico and the U.S. Southwest. This is just a heads up, but this coming December, our Advent webinar will be looking at the remarkable story and tradition of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So John's vision continues with the pointed refrain, reiterated three times in Revelation 12, that this woman takes refuge from the beast in the wilderness. The revelator is clearly drawing on the old Exodus motif of Israel's escape from Pharaoh into the desert. But whereas in that old story, creation joins the rebellion rising up against the empire in the famous series of plagues, here, the wilderness receives and protects this refugee from imperial violence. This nurturing hospitality gives new meaning to the term Mother Nature. This aspect of John's vision offers a symbol of the church as the community of nonviolent resistance in alliance with the earth herself. A true peace church must express the double capacity represented by the woman of Revelation 12, the courage to stand in the way of the dragon and the fortitude to dwell in the wilderness when marginalized or persecuted by that dragon. There is so much to these images that would be worth reflecting further on, but we are anxious to get on to our main topic tonight. So suffice it to say that in our opinion, John's vision is embodied magnificently by Liz McAllister, who you will get to hear from tonight. Liz is truly a woman clothed with the sun, who has endeavored to stand time and again before the dragon of war and weapons of mass destruction for more than 50 years now, on behalf of the children of today and of the future. So I just want to offer a little bit of background and context. Liz McAllister is a former Roman Catholic nun who gained notoriety in the late 1960s because of her nonviolent resistance to the Vietnam War. She then married activist priest Philip Berrigan, and together they founded Jonah House in the inner city of Baltimore, Maryland, which for 40 years now has been on the forefront of prophetic Christian witness against militarism and the nuclear arms race. So before we interview Liz, I want to draw your attention um, to a profile that I did of her in chapter six of our Ambassadors of Reconciliation book, volume two. And I hope that after you've met uh, Liz tonight through our webinar, you'll go back to that chapter and read more about her remarkable life and witness. So I just want to highlight a couple of aspects of Liz's journey, and then Chad and I will talk with her and she can fill you in more. So the first story I want to share is about the plowshares action that Liz participated in in the 1980s. On Thanksgiving Day, November 24, 1983, Liz and six other peacemakers entered Griffith Air Force Base in Rome, New York. And in a symbolic attempt to turn swords into plowshares, they hammered on B-52 bombers carrying cruise missiles and poured their own blood on them. 
They left at the sight of their witness a written indictment of the United States government pointing to the war crimes of pre preparing for nuclear war. While such a dramatic and risky action may seem disturbing to many who are from unfamiliar with this tradition of protest, these activists were trying to enact Isaiah's prophecy that nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war no more. Excuse me, learn war anymore. So in the interview that I did with Liz for our ambassador's book, she told me, I could not have done this action unless I felt under mandate of scripture to beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It was a momentous thing to do, and yet I had to do something against this death system. In federal court, the seven activists were tried for conspiracy and destruction of government prop property. An excerpt from Liz's trial diary, later published as Farewell to Nuclear Arms, states, The intent of the government, speaking of intent, is very clear. They seek to establish what we've loudly claimed, that we hammered on, painted, and poured our blood on weapons, and to seek a conviction on sabotage and destruction of government property together, and slide in conspiracy. Now they seek to shut down our defense, to shut down a discussion and presentation of justification, to shut down any discussion of the weapons themselves. The Griffiths Plowshares activists were convicted and received prison sentences ranging from two to three years, which Liz served at the Alderson's women, Alderson Women's Penitentiary. At the time of this action, Liz had three small children at home. And the youngest was two and a half when Liz began serving her two-year prison sentence. Liz is deeply concerned for her children and all children around the world, since the young are most adversely affected by war. And this informed her difficult decision to be away from her kids for that time. But as a result of Liz's commitment, Liz's commitment to nonviolent resistance, she has infused all three of her and Phil's children. As adults, adults, each child is involved in unique expressions of peace and justice work. Frida is the oldest and lives in Connecticut. Jerry is the middle child and lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And Kate is the youngest, living in Philadelphia. And I am sure that Liz will have more to say about these wonderful people later on. Another aspect of Liz's work I want to highlight is her experiments with urban homesteading. Almost 20 years ago, she and the Jonah House community began the long and ongoing process of transforming a 22-acre inner-city cemetery into vegetable gardens, orchards, and retreat space. And we'll ask Liz more about that amazing ongoing project as we go. I also want to mention that Liz has mentored hundreds, hundreds of activists, and that includes Ched and I. Liz is a gifted teacher of both scripture and the history of social change. I've had the privilege of organizing a couple of women's discipleship retreats with Liz 
where we looked at stories of women in the Bible. And Liz helped us recognize ourselves in the stories of women like Rachel and Leah, Shipra and Pua, Mary and Martha, and other women of courage and faith. Liz worked with us to rescue these texts from patriarchal interpreters so that we could realize afresh our vocation. Liz is also constantly accompanying younger activists, not only in the streets, but through life as a friend and counselor. Liz is in so many ways a mother of the movement. And I'm very grateful for grandmothers like Liz, who are strong enough to stand up to the beast, yet gentle enough to listen other women into speech. The consistent gospel message coming from Liz and Jonah House has been that if Christians do not experiment with nonviolence as a way of life, then the world will be sentenced to unending wars of empire. In my interview, she told me, Plowshares' actions might not be the way, but they are a way of stating very clearly these nuclear weapons have no right to exist. We do these nonviolent actions knowing the risk to our own freedom. We try to disarm a system of domination. These weapons allow us to invade other countries, to have access to their oil, tin, fruit, and coffee. People of conscience cannot accept this violence that impoverishes the majority and provides wealth for only a few. We need to practice nonviolent resistance, and we also need to disarm our hearts. Liz and her two longtime companions at Jonah House, Dominican sisters Artis Platt and Carol Gilbert, are the heart and soul of the Plowshares movement. These women elders have been exemplary in their vocation, and we are all indebted. So that's a little bit of context, especially for those of you who are new to uh, Liz, Liz's story and the legacy of Jonah House. Now we get to talk with Liz. And Liz, thank you so much for uh, joining all of us virtually here online. And we're, it's just a real privilege to, uh, to talk with you. So welcome. Thanks for all the work you put into this, Elaine and Chad. You're awesome. Love you. <laughs> all right. All right, and welcome to, I see so many names of friends on this, participants. I wish I could talk personally with each of you. Well, you're, you're getting to be heard by a lot of folk tonight. We want to begin at the beginning and invite you to reflect a little bit on your own upbringing, whatever you want to say about your, your family, and, uh, and especially your early years in... Uh, in religious formation, which I know were important to you. So, what do you want to tell us about that? Well, you asked about early influences, and you mentioned people like Merton and Dorothy and Stringfellow. I have to include two Carmelite priests who were part of the faculty and staff at the college. 
where I went, Marymount College, and the community I entered, the Religious of the Sacred Heart of Mary. One was Joachim Snyder, and the other, Anselm Burke. And I think the big thing with Father Snyder was his emphasis with women at the college on a life of prayer. And he encouraged that and directed that and you know, that was the beginning of something very new for me. And Anselm Burke was just a kind of poet and made the scriptures come alive. You also mentioned Merton and I never met Thomas Merton. I certainly read Thomas Merton. And I do credit Merton um, and, and feel him close in my life. The morning he died, um, a friend who was both a Jesuit and an attorney, we drove him to the airport to fly down to Baltimore. And he had a petition for the release of Philip and Tom Lewis from prison. This is mid-December. They had been in prison since the uh, Catonsville 9 action. They held them because the Catonsville 9 action occurred in between conviction and sentencing for the Baltimore 4 action, which was the first of the draft board actions. And Bill, and I believe Merton, were influential in having both Philip and Tom released on personal recognizance while their cases were on um, appeal. Um, and, and I think that release is really attributable to Thomas Merton, whom Phil did know and, and knew well. Have I lost this? Um, yeah, back again. You then asked about Dorothy, and for sure, Dorothy was an influence. I met her at the Catonsville trial, I think, for the first time. And she was there, we were there. Um, what I remember most about her was her leadership, and actually the Catholic worker leadership, in the resistance to the Vietnam War. It was people from the Catholic worker who were consistently at the induction centers and blocking induction of men into the military, which was a powerful witness against the war. And people from the Catholic worker frequently engaged in the actions of burning their draft cards when that was a federal crime and facing prison for that. But there was also a conflict in much of this because there were people who went and participated in actions from the Catholic worker and were arrested and were held. And she would say to them on return, you were on schedule to feed the pool. Um, and I think that was, she was criticized for that, but Upon reflection, I think what we're dealing with here is an issue of communication. You know, when you are taking a risk, as many of them took, and you have to find ways of replacing yourself back at the ranch, so to speak. And 
maybe it was as much an issue of not, of poor communication. And I think that underscores something that has to go on in community, especially in resistance community, especially in community where things aren't as regimented and you have to deal with things as they come up. Um, so I don't know the inner dynamics, but I think I can make some guesses that there were times when she probably did get absolutely frustrated because she's already overworked and now filling in for people who are doing the colorful actions, as often happens, eh? Those of us in community know those realities very well. And at the same time, she herself was not opposed to acting, but I think largely people knew when she was uh, planning in that fashion. Um, so to let community know when a risk uh, that could result in arrest in jail is contemplated. Um, Bill Stringfellow was another whom you mentioned. What a gift. And Bill was the one who introduced me to the writings of Elul, Jacques Elul. What a gift that was. Violence. His book, simply called Violence, is one of the finest things on violence I've ever read. Like many books from our library that are really good, it has disappeared. I've not been able to find a replacement. Apocalypse was another. Um, but Bill also gave us a vision of seminary that had to do with the study of scripture rather than so many things that are not as relevant to seminary as that. And I know that... Uh, Bill Wiley Kellerman has picked up very, very deeply on that, as have both of you. And I think that's part of the inspiration, isn't it, behind Word and World and that, that effort. Um, but, uh, Liz, let me, let me jump. Percent. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think our listeners are very curious how you how you first encountered um, some of these folks, and particularly how you encountered um, these activist priests, the Berrigan brothers. Um, and if you could just tell us how how you encountered them, and how you encountered them, and also tell us uh, about the influence of that Chaitonsville Nine action, which you've already uh, referred to. Uh, the influence that those things had on your journey and how you got involved through that. Well, I was in Tarrytown, New York, teaching at Marymount College there. We had a sister college in New York City, Marymount Manhattan College. A very close friend of mine, Sister Joe Exegum, was the president at that college. Dan Berrigan was assigned to Jesuit missions. Um, which had its offices in New York City, and he frequently came to Marymount to celebrate liturgy on weekday mornings with the nuns. And he would do the Mass, but he would also each day turn around and give a homily that could be five minutes long but blew people's minds. So the friendship developed out of that, and he came to Tarrytown as well, and I began reading his books. 
and Phil, um, we met somewhat later. I actually met Phil at the funeral of the Catholic worker who was killed on the streets. Just, he had $2 in his pocket, and they, it was a mugging that ended in his death. Phil came up from Baltimore to celebrate that funeral, and he was buried up, I guess, in Tivoli, and came back to Tarrytown that afternoon for lunch with the people with whom he was traveling. And the relationship just grew, you know. Um, you need to know that Catonsville was not the first of the draft board actions. The first of those actions was the Baltimore Four. Bill, Tom Lewis, um, uh, David Everhart, and a clergyman from Baltimore whose name is escaping me at the moment, went to the customs house with blood and poured the blood on the draft board files. And I heard about this action in this most dismissive tone on the radio, car radio, as I was traveling on an errand someplace. And I said, I want to know more about this. And then found out that evening who it was. And of course we said gratitude and went down for that trial too. And it was a very powerful witness that they had made. And then people began planning for Keaton's show. And that was a much larger witness and one that really got the attention of the public. And it was the second major action. Um, though I believe, no, I don't believe, I know, Phil was inspired with the Baltimore Four action by the action of a Quaker family in the Midwest. And for a number, for about a week, the father and his family, they had something like three sons, collected the family fecal material. And when he felt he had enough, went down to the local draft board and poured it on the draft files. So um, he said, no son of mine is going to fight in your wars. So we like to refer to that as the movements that began a movement. Um, and so, as I say, was very taken by that. Um, yeah. Um, where, where am I with this? Cadenceville. Yeah. Um, so Cadenceville, from Cadenceville, we were at the trial and they were already talking about the next action and recruiting people for what became the, the Milwaukee 14. Now, the Milwaukee 14 went into the draft board in Milwaukee where there were literally nine distinct draft boards which covered the whole city and environs of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And those guys took it out in one night. You know, they just grabbed all of these files and took them outside and burned them in a, in a public square. Um, and, you know, Bill got six years for Catonsville and they got a year for nine draft boards. There's no uh, justice in this. How are we doing with that, Jeff? Mm -hmm. Great. Just um, one one other question, Liz, about this era, which um, is known to many folks over 40, but less known, perhaps, to some of our younger listeners. A lot happened between uh, oh, yeah. 14 action through 69, 70, 
70, 71 and 2, um, which included uh, Dan going underground uh, in the spring of 1970, or being arrested on Block mm -hmm. Island later that summer. Uh, and then after that, of course, the Harrisburg trial, which, uh, Harrisburg yep. 7 trial, which of course you were part of, and, and maybe you could fill in some of that history for some of our listeners. You know, it's, it's, I want to refer to a film that recently came out, and it's called Hidden Stay. And it's a documentary film that's largely made by a local Baltimorean by the name of Joe Trapea. And Joe traces that whole series of actions and the people involved in it. He worked for years on this film. Um, by and large, it's very, very good, and um, it it I, I, the numbers of people that he interviewed and worked with, the numbers of actions that are described in that film, are pretty astonishing. I had figured there was about a hundred draft board actions in total. He in his research established three hundred three hundred draft board actions. At a time when these records were what they had, there was no computer backup. And when people destroyed those records, they were gone. There was no backup. I was part of the draft board action that did um, the state boards in Wilmington, Delaware. And we literally took the files out with us and then we mailed them to the men with a letter that said, here's your file, they don't have it anymore. We would prefer you not go and register again. But, um, of course, we don't know what happened, except that we do know that by the time we were halfway through this period, um, they were talking about ending the draft. And, of course, that was ultimately substituted for by the all-volunteer army that we've known since Vietnam. Um, and then, of course, the government began trying to subterfuge our so-called subterfuge and using informants and using provocateurs. And certainly the Camden 28, which was really the last of the draft board actions, experienced that in spades, where literally the FBI, through their informant, paid for the meals, paid for their equipment, paid for their, you know, directed their scoping and the whole nine yards. And the action would not have happened without the, um, the person hired by the FBI to, quote, be part of it, unquote. In the first part of that trial, he testified for the prosecution and talked about their plans and his part in them. And then his young son fell out of a tree and was impaled on the fence and killed. His funeral was celebrated by McDoyle, one of the defendants, and a priest in Camden. His funeral was attended by all of the Camden 28. 
and they were the ones who were the support for the family. And when it came to the defense, he reappeared as a witness for the defense and spoke about the, the truth of his participation. And it was absolutely stunning. It's also the only action uh, where there was a, an acquittal, a complete acquittal. And after it, a party of <laughs> the jury and the defendants and their families and their friends. One of the most amazing trials in history. And all of this does come out very, very beautifully in this film. So I, I'd like to recommend it. And um, but it, it also introduced that whole period of, you know, being watched and being followed and being, you know, provoked. And that's the, the Harrisburg, so-called Harrisburg Conspiracy Trial, was Boyd Douglas working for the FBI and trying to make things happen that people didn't really want to have happen. What's interesting is that in both the Harrisburg Conspiracy Trial and in the Camden 28 Trial, the government put tremendous effort into making these prosecutions happen. We know that they spent over a million dollars in Harrisburg. And it was, they could not get a conviction. So they didn't try it again. And of course they got an acquittal in, in Camden. So it's, um, it's an interesting kind of thing to see how our efforts to struggle against the draft, to struggle against the war by struggling against the draft, were quite, in a sense, successful, but then it leads to something, something else you need to do. And, yeah. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah. Yes. Um, Liz, two things, uh, before we move to the next chapter of, of this journey. One, uh, several of our listeners wanted you to repeat the name of, of that film that you mentioned. What's the title of that film? Hit and Stay. Hit and Stay. Which was what happened with the Baltimore 4, the Catonsville 9, the Milwaukee 14, and a number DC 9, and a number of these earlier actions. But then people began not hitting and staying, but surfacing, um, because they couldn't hit and stay. It became necessary to go into draft boards at night. It became necessary to use that kind of subterfuge to get in, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and he traces all of that, and he does a very, very good job tracing that, that history in that process. And with the government making it more and more difficult, following people and putting spies in, um, you know, people change tactics, basically. But in changing tactics, you also... Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, there, there's a story that you told us you know, you don't know what effect some of these actions, particularly the, the, the draft file actions, have. Uh, you, you, right. you, you have a beautiful story of meeting someone years later 
the, the guy in the airport. Could you tell that story? That's such a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah, my nephew's son, this is Philip Berrigan, the eldest of Jerry and Carol Berrigan's four children. And Philip is married to Cindy, and they have a daughter and a son who's also Philip. And, no, at any rate, he came and spent a week or so with us as a young kid. And I was taking him to the airport to fly back to Syracuse. And he was so young that you have to escort him to the gate, which, you know, you've got to get a certain pass from the uh, airlines to be able to accompany somebody young who's flying out unaccompanied. So the man was looking at our identification, and he smiled, and he gave me the pass, and he said, Berrigan McAllister, yeah. My draft card was in Catonsville, and I never went. And I've been eternally grateful every day. Go ahead. That was, that's the one you meant, Chad. Yeah. That's beautiful. Run across people from time to time who will acknowledge that. It's really stunning. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.